0: So how you doing today, Sean? Oh, uh, it's a rainy, crappy day. Um, I was looking forward to spending some time in person with you, podcasting after work. But uh, turns out you're a little ill. So this is one of those rare anti news episodes where we're not sitting across from one another. I hope the vibe isn't totally fucked.
1: Yeah, you know, I got COVID last December with like basically everyone else I know, and. Now, a lot of those same people are getting it again, so I figure I'm going to get it pretty soon. Um, I tested myself today. I'm negative, but just, you know, if I do get it, try not to spread it at all, Uh, you know. Yeah, that would be nice. I know we're not wearing masks so much anymore. At least if you get it or think you might have it, please don't
0: go about your normal day. I've heard about some people doing this, and that is not cool. that's not cool at all. would you do that with the fucking flu? I mean, come on, I mean that's always been since I was raised like if you have the flu, you fucking stay home. you don't I, want to give it to people.
1: yeah, I never really thought about it so much before, uh, but yeah, you should you should not do that and and I think like even if you have the flu, you should be wearing a mask now like oh I, for sure I feel like yeah. the mask had become such a cultural signifier that people don't even remember its actual use, which is that if you're sick you
0: you should wear it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the um the East Asian countries were way ahead of us on that one. And I guess now we've all caught up. You know, you should if you have the flu or you have COVID, you should stay home from work, use one of your paid sick days <laughs> in order to take some time and relax. Because as we all know, Everybody benefits in this society from paid sick days, whether it's one or seven or 15 or whatever it is that the Biden administration shoves down your fucking throat. How about that for a segue?
1: huh? Maybe the Biden administration should shove some vitamins down the throats of the train workers. That way they won't get sick.
0: Yeah, that's that's really good. They can do like a corporate sponsorship with one of those little like fizzy tablets you put in your drink that's supposed to keep the the sickness away
1: emergency and exercise can be
0: written into the agreement and i think that's Mm -hmm. a great uh that's
1: a great solution
0: as we all learned from the episode with uh justin rosniak you know they don't even have toilets so if you were to give them like a free supply of emergency i'm sure they'd be really hyped about it
1: yeah you're gonna need a lot more bottles because that stuff really makes you pee uh, so, yeah. OK, so what happened since last week
0: with the oh, uh, man.
1: the train strike?
0: The whole thing has seemed to fizzle. Um, well, that is to say what Justin Rosniak predicted and a lot of people predicted um, happened, uh, which is that Congress came in and uh, forced a contract upon them. They're able to do that through the Rail Labor uh, Agreement or act rather from the 1920s. And they went ahead and did it. The uh, the politics of it were really weird and kind of funny in a dark way because you ended up having members of the famous squad, you know, these Democratic socialists in Congress uh, voting to strike break, which led to some fun times like me ratioing uh, AOC on Twitter the other day.
1: Okay, so you're one of these people who thinks the squad's uh, class traitor sellouts.
0: No, because I never considered them (laughs) on the side of that anyways. I think that they, you know, the way AOC and company um, talked their way out of it was to say, well, oh, this is what the the rail unions wanted us to do. They want us to fight for like a separate bill to give seven sick days in the House. And then when we couldn't get those seven sick days in the bill to pass the House, we'll put two bills up. And then the Senate will reconcile those and we'll somehow manage to, you know, snatch – victory from defeat, uh, get some of what the workers wanted in there, these really important scheduling and time issues. And, of course, it didn't happen. When they split that up, um, it ended up, of course, not passing in the Senate with the sick time. And instead, they just got the uh, shitty Biden contract with those pay raises, but no actual changes whatsoever to um, the scheduling debacle, which treats them essentially as uh, peons, as serfs. So you know they can people can argue oh well AOC can argue oh that's what the the union leadership wanted motherfucker the union leadership were the ones that bargained this contract to begin with and they were the idea that they were on board with an actual strike as opposed to them being forced to talk about the strike because the membership of uh, the majority of the members of these unions uh, struck the contract down. is just laughable. So, of course, AOC and the squad and the left wing of the Democratic Party, when they say they're for unions, of course, they mean they're with union leadership. They take their cues from them. But what would it mean
1: for them to break with union leadership? Like, wouldn't that be a debacle in
0: itself? I mean, in what way could they break with you? I. Like union leadership and the Democratic Party is obviously, you know, two fingers in the same glove. What would it mean for AOC to break with um, the with union leadership? I'm not sure. She'd have to come out in support of the rank and file. But the rank uh, against- and file, like, uh, like some rank and file voted
1: to uh, in favor of the agreement, and some didn't, right? So right. you'd have to have to pick a side, like a class yeah. faction of the rank and file. And right. Which, you know, she could do that. It's just I don't think it like achieves anything. So basically, I feel like this whole conversation about like the squad and even about Biden and even about the unions in general is people who have no power talking about people who have no power, not doing something performative that wouldn't change anything. Like.
0: Right. Yeah. Like the
1: only way yeah. uh, the workers would have gotten what they want is if they had struck first right like if they had taken action yeah. in some way initially that would have made biden or the rail companies or whoever else could have actually given them the deal understand that the the workers are stronger in the situation than capital and since that had had not occurred at any point the state of course is going to side with capital
0: well yeah i mean the state's interest in this is keeping the commodities flowing keeping things moving around right um super essential for the american economy it was like 40% of our uh freight goes by rails uh so their interest is just like whatever agreement the with the optics good enough to convince the democratic party that uh you know they did all they could for the workers what you're pointing to and what the lack here was because i'm i'm not convinced that we're not going to see Something like slowdowns or something like uh, sick outs, you know, when this contract finally goes through uh, where we might see some isolated sort of actions in that way. I mean, God forbid we might see some rail workers going postal, um, given how insane their schedules are and the shitty, shitty, horrible conditions. Um, but yeah, you know what you would have needed in this situation would have been an activated rank and file beyond just voting no uh but some sort of as you said class fraction within that or class militant fraction within that who are organized uh sufficiently to present a wildcat strike as a plan b and it doesn't seem like those forces existed at least not in not en masse or if they do exist uh, in a minority uh they were easily you know um Uh, quieted down after the full force of the the US Congress and uh, Joe Biden came and basically forced them, chained them back to the wheel. So I think it points to a lack um, on on all of our parts, really. You know, I think you're right. It's not fair to simply blame the squad or AOC. I mean, Brandon is like the most powerful person in the entire world. Um, These are all like this is just the way that their world and their politics works. They were going to force this down the workers' throats for economic and political reasons. What we should be thinking about is as each one of these different conflicts arise, and they've been arising a lot with the Caterpillar strike, with the Kellogg strike, uh, with what's happening in Amazon and Starbucks, shit, there's the 50,000 person use sea strike. You know, how do we not only gain an organic connection to these struggles Uh, given our own particular positions, but also like, how are we thinking strategically about what it would actually take in order to turn a defeat like this into something potentially victorious. And that I think is the work of like slow, steady organizing and uh, building rank and file power and not falling for the sort of tricks of saying, well, This could all be blamed on AOC and the sellouts. I think it's like amusing that it came down to it, that they fucking that they voted for this. But it's not it's completely in keeping with their politics as the left wing of the Democratic Party. We shouldn't be surprised.
1: Part of the blame could also go to tensions or or splits within the rank and file as well. Right. Like there's this kind of two tiered system where the older workers have a, a better deal.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's. I, I think that they have. So there's uh, like what 13 different craft unions, right? This is another th- issue that they ran into, and that the building trades run into, and all sorts of craft, you know, trade unions run into, which is that they're balkanized. You know, the engineers have their own particular union. Uh, the switchmen have their own particular union. They're you know, like the, the Serbian people. Those are like the Bosnians. They're, yeah, in fact, the rest of this podcast is us just looking at a map of the Balkans and trying to figure out where these 13 different unions are within that. And uh, so maybe as an analogy, you know, we're looking for a World War One here. We're, <laughs> we were looking for one of these sparks to ignite a prairie fire. I don't know. And Brandon's the um, Archduke. Brandon is, yeah. Brandon's the Archduke in this situation. RWU um,
1: is the black hand. <laughs>
0: I like this analogy. This has taken a uh, a dark and fun turn. Well, I know so but... little about uh the the railroad workers and and
1: compared to what I know about the Balkans, so.
0: Oh, well, yeah, fair. If enough. you could just
1: put everything in Balkan terms for me, I'll I'll understand this better.
0: Well, you wrote in the uh outline for this, uh pundits say wildcat is impossible. So where does the anger go? I mean, that's a really good and interesting question from what I've heard and read um, the reports are that if you're an old timer, right, if you've been uh, in one of these unions for 30 years, I mean, what's an average person's working lifespan, like 35 years or whatever, if you got in when you were young, you know, at at what was like a very – Privileged position within the working class, which is just to say, a very well-paid job with a strong union and protections. Over the last thirty years, you've seen thirty-five thousand of your fellow uh, fellow workers laid off. Um, you know, railroad unions in this country have a very militant, radical history, also a history of defeat uh, in the nineteen sixties and nineteen seventies, uh, with the whole Conrail uh, fiasco and all that stuff. But these unions have this like vast repository of craft knowledge and craft pride that they've held for 150 years or so, all that being passed down. Apparently old timers now uh, by and large are simply waiting till they can get enough pension credits in to just get the fuck out um, of, of this uh, and retire altogether because conditions have got so shitty and horrible for younger workers. You know, it, it it basically seems like what capital is trying to do in this instance uh what the railroad bosses are trying to do is make railroading and that work uh sort of like a temporary gig so something like you know when there was like the the shale oil uh fields were booming and you all these young men and some women we're going into like North Dakota to live in these little boom towns and they'd make like $150,000 in six months by working, you know, 80 hours a week and just banging through all this work and they would go home and they'd put a down payment on a house. I think this is basically what railroading is going to become. It's going to become something that's only viable for people to do for like four or five years before they're either completely burnt out physically, uh, spiritually, emotionally, uh, or they, 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 Try, they want to do that very human thing of like finding stability in like a family or just getting out of the hustle and bustle and calming down this is gonna this seems like it's gonna be impossible so you're looking at like a replaceable and precarious workforce that's gonna be driven to the limits of human endurance uh, of course in an industry where a simple mistake can lead to, as we saw in the uh, in the lac uh, Mag- uh, magnetique disaster in Canada, a simple mistake on the rails can lead to the atomization of an entire town. A simple mistake from exhaustion, being tired on the rails, means dead motorists. You know, a car is on the tracks and they don't, they're do not they too tired to see, boom, that car has gone. Derailments, of course, destroying millions of dollars of goods. These are the sorts of things that this industry, that this particular push to um, clamp down on these workers is going to lead to. And it seems that even the investors, there was a... A thing that came out today in Business Insider about how even the investors behind BSNF are saying, like, you should really get these people some sick days. (laughs) Like, we weren't on the bargaining committee, but we really don't want really sick and tired people driving at 60 miles per hour, like, through, you know, towns and cities in this country with all those millions uh... of dollars of goods on them. Okay, so they're thinking about the, the goods, right? Uh, of course, yeah. yeah. The, the constant capital and the insurance has come
1: into uh, comes to risk. Then we might have to start thinking about the the uh, variable capital, right? But uh, right, yeah. Uh, yeah you, we had that intro on the show last week uh, with the guy saying like, "There's blood on my hands," yeah. and like, isn't this uh, continuing in that process? Isn't isn't this continuing to you know c- continuing to reduce the number of workers you you need, make the trains longer? make hours longer. This, is, this just seems, like, incredibly dangerous. The the increase in pay is some consolation, but it just seems like an unsustainable way to, to work people.
0: Well, I mean, it's like everything else in this fucking country that seems unsustainable. I mean, we, we just went through this, like, giant global pandemic where a million people died in this country, and very rarely, if at any time did something like a single payer healthcare, you know, insurance system arise politically in this country, you know, this overhang of this like 15% of our economy that's full of grifters basically like sucking money out of sick people has to continue and it seems like any day now that all these balls being juggled right now in this Fucked up economy and fucked up political system that is the United States. Seems like those balls being juggled are going to fall, but they they're still up there somehow. You know, it's like some coyote and roadrunner shit. Capital would rather have this state of affairs, um, you know, what they're pushing onto these rail workers than ultimately having a relationship to workers as the rail workers have had in the past that says that they have a say in their schedules and aren't just cogs in a wheel. We're going to talk about Twitter in a little bit, and this is going to be a similar argument to what I make about Twitter, is that we're in a moment of capitalist development and also a moment of capitalist crisis where it seems like this cannibalistic desire to just cut right through the flesh and right into the bone by capital is just increasing and expanding itself and and speeding up. And it seems to me, like you said, that there has to be some sort of limits, at least the limits of human endurance, you know, that you can push these people. But I guess, you know, capital, the logic of capital is going to fuck around and maybe we'll find out. I don't know.
1: So do you do you think that we will see any kind of slowdowns or, you know, stick out something like that? Is it, I mean, maybe they'll happen or they are happening and we're just not going to know about it because like, how would we?
0: yeah probably. I mean slowdowns and sickouts happen all the time when you hear about it it's because of a, it's because it's a larger campaign oftentimes uh, and this has happened to me in my union, union leadership will like wink and nod when there's like an unofficial job action. you know I don't think that the the unions in this case are going to really allow unofficial or even wink and nod at unofficial job actions like that, but I wouldn't be surprised if they come up. But then I think it would just be like out of revenge, right? Like it wouldn't be actually to win anything. It would be out of revenge because, like, any after accepting this contract and not actually fighting, like, any sort of um, reaction to it is going to be either just fuck it, throw up your hands and quit. Like, I don't need this $80,000 a year base pay. I, I just can't fucking do this anymore. Doing the individual, you know, quiet or loud quitting thing. Um, or it's going to be, you know, some sort of suicidal revenge struggle where you just like call a bunch of you call into work, knowing that you're all going to be fired because the trains aren't running and they know you're doing it coordinately, but you don't give a shit. You're like the old timers. You just, just get me out of here. I can't fucking do this anymore. And that's, these are the sort of reactions that people can have or are forced to have individual ones or sort of like suicidal uh re vindicative actions when the ability or, uh, yeah, when the ability for mass collect a- action is not there or has been stymied. So this is a giant defeat. Um, this is make no mistake, a huge defeat, not just for the rail workers, but for the working class of, uh, of this country. Um, Basically, you know, this this balkanized craft trade situation, the union leadership tied with the Democratic Party, the necessity to try to to play defense, essentially, and the like abrogation of of the union's ability and also desire to actually stand up and fight around the actual work process itself. Instead of simply just like taking the raise, like oh yeah, this is good, fighting over the conditions and the autonomy of the workers within that, we now are faced looking at uh, at a huge defeat for the class. Where I would go with that is I would say that any illusions people might have had about um, a sort of uh, reformist route, <laughs> uh, a way to like to To take these particular unions and point them in the right direction, do like a rail workers for for union democracy sort of thing it's possible, and people should still certainly try it. but we should ask ourselves whether craft unions in particular uh or just unions uh in general in the United States are even salvageable at this point in time, if they can't even get the sort of wins in this incredibly propitious not just objective like in terms of objective conditions but also subjective conditions with 70 percent of americans in support of unions uh if you can't actually pull out and pull it all out and have a, a throw down fight uh with capital under those conditions if you're not willing to risk something if you're willing to just roll over take a little bit of money take it on the chin and then throw your membership into the meat grinder you know ultimately what good is it there's 133,000 workers now in 5 years it'll be 100,000 in 10 years maybe it'll be 80,000 and so the unions will be good in order to try to like keep a smaller and smaller subsection of the class employed at a decent amount of money um as this churn as this burn as this like um as this destruction of lives by attrition and by exhaustion continues the unions will sit there at the center of it and manage the slow decline of uh, of these trades for what was once a very skilled and reputable uh, uh you know profession so it's sad to see very sad
1: well you know i think it it's certainly defeat um but what might be even sadder about it to me is i'm not sure that there was a lesson learned. It's not like there was a tactic that was defeated. It was this hope that a uh, a a president and a party that considers itself pro union would side with the workers, um, even if it meant the possibility of there being a major disruption to the economy. Right. So, I don't know why anyone would. I mean, that you could hope that. You could hope that Biden would, like, go out on a limb for them. You know, he's a very old man. Like, what does he have to lose, right? <laughs> I guess his legacy. You know, he'll be he, – I'm sure, like, him and the rest of the party are just – and the unions are just terrified about being blamed for ruining Christmas, like what's oh, yeah. going on in the U.K.
0: You know, the, They don't want to be Grinches.
1: Uh, uh, and, and, and besides that, you know, ruining Christmas might, like, push the country into – deeper into an economic recession or, like, a, a less stable situation um but the my point is that if yeah like like what you said if no one's really fighting if there's nothing risked then how could there be anything gained like the working class has never gained anything just through appealing to the state or appealing to capital just right. asking like like that dickensian character in the orphanage who is that uh Oliver uh, Oliver Tom T-
0: Sawyer yeah, Oliver yeah. Twist yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> like just asking for an extra bowl of porridge it's not gonna that's not how you get it you know you got to take it
0: yeah yeah they like I had a bunch of liberals like down my fucking throat saying well the Democrats got as much as they could get for the workers this is they, they fought hard they didn't have the votes the Republicans shot down the seven days proposal The the Democrats did what they could Brandon did what he could motherfucker it wasn't about asking the democrat for me the issue isn't like oh well did they get as much as they possibly could in our political climate the issue was are you willing to let rail workers fight for themselves are you willing to allow them to fucking show their power as a fraction of the class that's essential to keeping the fucking gears rolling if they giving them the ability to show their power scare the shit out of them You know, because there is this implicit power in the strike, the implicit power that the Rail Labor Act took away, essentially, turned into this sort of corporatist situation with capital on the one side, workers on the other, with the state sitting in the middle as the arbitrator, right? It's not a matter of the Democrats did as good as they could. It's it's let the people fight for themselves. Let these workers fight for themselves and see what they can do. And that's what was exciting about this was the potential to see – Something approaching uh, a militant workers autonomy again, uh, whether that was an official strike, as seemed like would have been the case if uh, Brandon hadn't just shown up on TV and said, Congress, you got to shove this this contract down their throats. Um, you know, this is a this is the great counterfactual. This is a counterfactual that's to, I talked about this. We talked about this a, a few weeks ago that. Again, these subjective and objective conditions are such right now that every time one of these things comes up, and they've been coming up more and more, um, we have to wonder whether this is going to be the time when it finally breaks. Are those balls that are being juggled, uh, is one of them going to be dropped? Is there a possibility – this sort of quantitative rise in strike activity and, and, uh, and, and workers' activity going to turn into qualitatively something else? And what does it look like when that happens, and how is that related to the struggle uh, against capitalism for communism? I mean, I still, you know, this is like I said, this is a defeat, but I'm still hopeful because you still have massive struggles happening right now, and as you said before, it doesn't seem like things can keep going the way that they've been going.
1: Well, do you think that there's something to this great resignation idea uh, or this sort of um, like ephemeral slowdown that's happening in the economy after the pandemic uh, and all the other various crises that we see around us? Workers have just they see their unions and they see their employers and they see the the politicians and the entire power structure, the entire social order as far less legitimate as they did 10, 20 50 years ago and so the kinds of struggles that we're going to be seeing are more invisible like slow down, stealing on the job that kind of thing like just they're take they can't get anything through the union so they're taking what they can get in other ways
0: yeah no i i think that's true that, that's really hard to i mean we can talk anecdotally about that i mean i even see that in in my day-to-day work day a lot of people are just fucking checked out more so than i think they were before covid you know people giving way less of a shit on the job uh less willing to put up with the bullshit of the bosses or whatever i think everybody listening has probably seen this a little bit more at least than uh we did in the past um i mean that's that there is some comfort there i mean in supposing that there's something working sort of subterranean to this that there are these like flashpoints that pop up uh various different strikes various different organizing campaigns um but underneath that, there is like a well of sort of, um, sure, like isolated and atomized sort of activity, but pointing in a in a direction towards becoming something. I'm I'm very sympathetic with that actually. I think that 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 describes a lot. I think of what's happening right now when bourgeois economists look at uh, the labor market, they're really confused why there's just big giant holes in there. Ah. Um, people just missing or, or you know, a lot of people have just gone into the informal economy. Yeah, They don't see getting a job fucking being worth anything. They're selling drugs or they're doing little side hustles, doing side work, you know, just trying to make it by getting, like maybe they had some savings and they're just living off of that now. I think there has been, and we're going to track this and we're going to see over the next several years, there's been a fundamental shift, I think, in how not everybody but many, many American workers uh, confront, you know, bosses and con- and confront capital and understand that. So again, we're, we're, we're left waiting. And hopefully we're, we're all left, you know, doing some sort of organizing or activity or thinking or writing or whatever. In the meantime, we're left waiting for stochastically, a sort of breaking point where maybe we'll start to see what the qualitative shift what these all like, these individual actions are going to mean. Uh, for a qualitative shift, and if we, as I said before, about the rail unions and the and the building or the craft trades, and in my case, the building trades being essentially almost less than worthless at this point, you know, basically just kind of a rear, rear guard defense of uh, you know not just their membership but defense of capital against uh, a rank and file membership, as we've seen with strike votes in the in the high nineties. You know, unions acting as a sort of break on this struggle. I think, you know, more and more that I look at it, I just read um, Solidarity for Sale uh, by Robert Fitch about corruption in the union movement. He got excommunicated from the left for this book, but it's a really powerful and good one because he points to the fact that these, you know, specialized craft trade unions, this Gompersite unionism uh, in this country – is the wellspring of corruption itself that it doesn't even require a mafia, uh, although that helps. What it requires is basically a labor racket, is an exclusion of um, all sorts of workers from the particular trade, the creation of like a lumpenized version of yourself that stands outside of these, you know, exclusive, often white male trades. I think at this point in time, we got to see and think about um, the way these these quantitative things turn qualitative. And I'm hoping to in my lifetime, maybe to see um, some sort of real serious class movement again. That's not going to be just isolated little actions.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's the challenge, right, is like you've got people refusing and striking in their own individual way or like maybe they've got something worked out with their coworkers that are immediately around them. But uh, the unions, like uh, for all their problems, are very adept at coordinating mass activity. And yeah, yeah rank and file workers so far. Uh, there's a few cases of it, in, like West Virginia with a teacher strike that
0: just hasn't generalized. Um, I mean, what it's what it's going to take is for uh, and maybe now that the, the so-called millennial left has kind of been disabused of its Bernieite sort of tendencies, its tendencies towards sort of tailing the Democratic Party. Um, perhaps, you know, what it's going to look like is probably what it has to look like, which is people fighting for the union while fighting against their union. You know, people thinking outside of the bounds of this, their particular jurisdiction, their particular craft, their particular industry even. Uh, and starting to you know to look at a, a fight that looks more generalized, look at unions that are more industrial, and I'm using that in a technical sense, like bringing people together from all sorts of different aspects of the job together under one uh, union umbrella. It's going to have to look like what we saw in the 1930s, where the Congress of Industrial Organizations breaks away from the old conservative American Federation of Labor. Um, or it'll look like 1905 with the founding of the IWW. I mean, if we are serious about uh, working class self-activity, we're serious about uh, a mass movement um, for the class and against capital, uh, these are the sort of things that we need to be fighting for. It's all well and good to have, you know, three or four um, people in the House of Representatives that'll sometimes throw you a bone uh, rhetorically while at the same time, you know, uh paying for or voting for weapons systems to be sent to israel it's another thing to ima- imagine what it would look like for us to build actual working class power outside of the the hollowed halls of power uh and instead on the streets and uh in the workplace
1: well i'm i'm a little skeptical of even this vision of like what if there could be you know a new radical union formation because and this is, again, like sort of my anecdotal hang up. The, the last strike that I sort of observed close hand was, it was a, you know, it was a university worker strike. So not exactly the real workers, but there is a dynamic that I noticed there. And I've, I've heard about this in a lot of other similar strikes where there's like a major dissatisfaction with the bargaining committee, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And so they get recalled or they resign and then The more radical faction of the rank and file elects their own negotiating committee, bargaining committee, and then they go and bargain and come back with essentially the same deal and say essentially the same thing as, like, the people who were previously announced as the union bureaucrats. And then this process might even happen one more time. And, uh, you know, I'm not sure exactly how that happens other than it just seems like the way labor and capital negotiates – does de facto this thing that is not good for workers and it's not like the secret is just to get better negotiators or more class consciousness uh to spread or like a more fighting organization although i think that'll create some gains it'll it still seems like it'll be pretty marginal on aggregate and you know the creation of something like the IWW would obviously reflect like uh a a major revolutionary social change that's a lot different than just getting like more radical workers involved in the negotiating process. So I agree with you that something like that would be a very positive development, but I think the dream of just creating a better union is maybe not going to solve this problem.
0: Yeah, I mean, this this fun... I'm going to do a whole episode about this. I'm going to get... I'm going to find a radical labor historian, and I'm going to sit down with them and actually talk about the way that... uh, not just the American labor law, but the way that unionism developed in this country... Uh, the whole, you know, what do unions often fight for in this country? They fight against right to work. They, fo- they fight for the closed shop, which basically means once you get the job, you're forced to pay dues uh, and you're part of the union. Other countries have completely different sorts of systems. You know, the the most glaring example is France, where there is no closed shops, and actually unions compete within the workplace uh, in order to get. You know, some percentage of the workers on board where strike action is not a sort of pro forma once every four or five years when a contract. Uh, negotiation has gone wrong, but instead strikes are something that can happen politically. Strikes are things that can happen on the shop floor if the contract isn 't being followed you know instead of a grievance procedure. sometimes something like eight to ten percent of the workers in uh you know the c g t in a in a French factory can fucking call a strike and and go out the same day so like a lot of what we what you 're describing and a lot of what we 're talking about here in this particular uh, story this defeat with the rail workers are things that are you know generalizable because i think unions and the working class has been defeated on all fronts all over the place for at least 40 or 50 years at this point uh, but there are very particular things to the united states where if we understand uh the that that starting in the 1930s starting in the 1920s with the rail uh, labor act um that the kind of unionism that's been offered um, at, by the state or at least was ratified by the state is one that basically represents golden handcuffs that, you know, for a, a couple of generations it provided rising living standards, uh, but it did not have the ability to to maintain or to push forward a more generalized working class movement uh, that could fight for more than just rearguard actions or uh, or or even be able to to do the sorts of powerful um sort of solidaristic strike and other job action things that in other countries have have proved so powerful in the past like secondary boycotts and stuff. So there's a big the big picture here is that uh, you know as I've said before on this show American labor law um exists to have exactly what happened this last week uh continue to happen. And while unions are are pesky, you know while the the UC uh, grad students rising up and refusing to grade uh, is pesky for the school system, while um, Amazon workers uh, voting to form a union is pesky for Amazon and might change actual conditions on the shop floor in ways that management and owners will be very unhappy with, none of this is a particular threat to capital itself. None of it is a threat to actually, instead of changing small things around the margin or particular pay scales, actually become a method of building working class power. And we are charged with, I think, trying to think through the ways that the American situation handcuffs all of us, whether we're in unions or not, whether we're even employed or not, but also think through the ways in which that could be overcome. Because I was talking about this with... uh, Jonah um, Foreman, uh, who's a labor, a great labor reporter on Twitter, uh, talking about how it's insufficient to simply fight within the unions, uh, to fight within particular labor law that we have, to listen to Congress and say, you know what, they say don't strike. Brandon says don't strike, we don't strike. We need to think beyond that. And the problem with thinking beyond that is that railway workers, you know, people in the building trades like myself, people at the Kellogg's factory, uh, people at the Caterpillar plant, right, make a decent buck. And so it's easier to kick the can down the road to the next contract than to engage in a fight that might mean your union is decertified, which means all of a sudden it is gone now. Mm. All those benefits you had are gone. Maybe the deal you get will be way worse because you won't have a union anymore. Or, you know, in the case of railway workers, they could be fined if they do a wildcat strike. You know, there's all sorts of consequences. So it takes the sort of leap into the dark, the leap into the abyss for all of us, you know. Um, For every single worker has to decide whether this particular struggle is one that they're willing to face material consequences for, as it's been so far over the last few years, people have been willing to fight, but not the sort of uh, potentially suicidal struggle uh, against capital that probably is going to be the sort of thing that becomes necessary, especially as this crisis compounds itself.
1: You know, we've done a lot of episodes about this, and uh, obviously, we had some hopes for how things would go. And, but I think you know, w- we kind of saw that this would be the most likely eventuality. You know, with this sort mm-hmm. of inertia in the workers' movement. Like, obviously, there are things to be excited about, but um, this is like a major industrial action where we haven't really seen a, a win like this in a long time, especially mm-hmm. without. Uh, The actual action part of it manifesting was the threat of a major industrial action. You you mentioned Jonah Furman. I I think he was the one posted something about he was talking to a rail worker who said he was so mad that he'll never vote for the Democrats again and he's going to donate money to Trump now. And there was a reaction to that on Twitter. And this is this is going to be a means of transitioning towards us talking about Twitter and spectacular right versus left wing politics. You know, yeah. So moving away from the stuff that you and I think actually matters, which is like what the workers are doing and thinking and how they're organizing and fighting, and then going yeah. to this, the world of bullshit <laughs> that is Twitter. <laughs> um, so Jonah Furman posts like a worker reacting off the cuff saying, uh, I'm so mad at, at Brandon, I might be a Trump supporter now, you know, yeah, and then people yeah. responding to that saying, wow, you're so mad at Brandon, you're a fascist? Wow. Like, <laughs> right, yeah. That's really messed. And it's like, okay, well, y- you'd, you'd obviously disagree with that reaction, um, but this is this guy's life, and right. he's just been told to eat shit by his union and by the Democratic Party, and yep. he has no other options. And so he's just he his first option is, I want to get revenge on the Democratic Party, and I'm going to yeah. do the thing that you guys hate the most. Yeah, and vote for Orange Man,
0: and so many people who voted for Orange Man in the in the the first time around were doing it for revenge, right? It wasn't because they about... wanted to own the libs right. or they wanted to own uh, the neocons in the Republican Party or whatever. I mean, it wasn't where about did build these... the wall. It was it was about fuck you. I mean, it was it was about it was about build the wall to the extent that like nativism and really shitty stuff was like coded directly into his fucking campaign. I just mean there's but a yeah, lot of was- reasons
1: but I think I don't think workers believed that Trump would do anything differently. I mean some did obviously, but you know he could have. It could he could have been like some sort of right populist figure who was on the side of the workers. That's happened yeah. in the past but he wasn't. So I don't think any worker like turning to the right after this is, is doing it cuz they think the right will be better. Although Marco Rubio was like One of the few like him and Sanders were like like a couple of the only senators to actually like champion the workers here. Yeah. So it would make sense that some people would make the mistake that like maybe Rubio is on their side. Of course, that's ridiculous. But yeah. But um, the
0: people who are mad, the people who are mad at at Twitter or at the at this gentleman on Twitter dot com. You said it exactly right. What are the options at this point in time? The only political options given anybody, whether they're a worker, whether they're a manager, whether they're an owner of a business or whatever, whether they're unemployed, is to vote one party or the other. So, of course, this guy's pissed off. And, of course, his ire is directed at uh, the president of the United States, who didn't have to break the strike. That's like the other thing that got me so mad on Twitter. He didn't have to do it. He he didn't have to. He literally went out of his way to announce that he wanted Congress to, you know, fucking take away these people's right to withhold their labor. So of course this guy's bad. And I was like, you know, I I got I caught a lot of shit for commenting on that uh, particular post right there. But like I feel like the these like DNC types, man, they don't know what they're they don't know what sort of like backlash they're creating. Like the Trump backlash was pretty bad already, but now you've got fucking train workers who are like, fuck Brandon so hard. I'm going to go in this like complete other direction it's this this country's going to hell in a handbasket man well, politically I, I, I and otherwise well i think like there is a it's possible cuz you're right nothing can do anything no, nobody can do anything either way
1: right you know i think it's possible that more people voted brandon than any other presidential candidate ever because trump had let down so many people and had pissed pe- yeah. so many people off so this is just the pendulum spinning back and forth and unless something changes it's going to keep going that way um And
0: And the question of like what changes, I mean, because we can – are we talking about a Jimmy Dore style like third party or whatever? Are we talking about just like more or better unions negotiating contracts every four or five years? Are we talking about like having a President Sanders who will actually let the workers strike for a couple days and show their power? I mean there has to be an option beyond that. There needs to be a sort of – I'll um, a, a, call a broader left that actually has some organizational potency and a sort of program or and a way to input people that workers, instead of saying it's either Brandon or the orange guy, you know, can have a, a, a different way. And that's that's contingent upon all of us. That's not contingent upon them.
1: So we're going to talk about Musk and Twitter, if, if you can stomach it. I have like a few theories about like what he's trying to do, including a theory of a Arendtian Musk, like how, <laughs> how Musk can complete the cycle of Hannah Arendt's materialism. Uh, but <laughs> we'll talk about that behind the paywall. And yeah. uh, I want to thank all of our new subscribers from last month. Thank you so much for signing up. Yeah, Um, thank you. You can sign up for just $5 a month or for a whole year, you get a a discount of like 17% or something. And if you sign up, you get access to our Discord community, all of our bonus content. And if you sign up or if you've been a patron for a while and haven't gotten one yet, just DM us on Patreon. DM your mailing address and I'll send you a, a card. And if you do it pretty soon, it'll be there in time for the holidays and you can hey. put it under your christmas tree and open it and say it's from santa there but it won't go. be
0: it'll be from me <laughs> it'll be from the santa Fata. well for this bonus behind the paywall i have a very extremely spicy take about elon musk and twitter that you're not going to not going to want to miss so we'll see you on the other side i can't be happy without you around so alone. He didn't stand by me, no, not at all He didn't stand by me, no way He didn't stand by me, no, not at all He didn't stand by me, no way You must explain A job, but it don't pay, I need no clothes, I need someone to stay.
1: By me, no, not at all. It didn't stand by me. No way,
0: it didn't stand by me. No, not at all. It didn't stand by me. No way, you must explain why this must be.
1: And now we're on the other side. Do you actually have a spicy take or was that just uh, a little bit of advertising?
0: Uh, No, I think I really do have a spicy take or at least like a unique take um, on the on the Elon Musk and Twitter stuff. I mean, I've been we've all been watching as the, the the hell site has broken into like another circle of hell over the last few weeks since Elon Musk bought the thing Um going in all sorts of different directions. There's culture war. There's Democrats versus Republican. There's woke versus anti-woke. There's globalists versus nationalists. There's a whole lot of takes flying around, but I do think mine might be kind of unique.
1: Yeah, it's, um, before we get to that, it kind of reminds me of in Ghostbusters when, uh, the, uh, like the little box that stores all the ghosts gets busted open and all the ghosts come out. Yeah, the containment unit. And, like, Slimer's running around with like all the wieners in his mouth. That, yeah. That's kind of like Amy Therese coming back with all the. Ah,
0: I saw that today. <laughs> I saw, of course, my, I fucking get home from work. I walk the dog. I fucking sit down to just take a little bit of a, a bit of a break before we record. And who is on the top of my time? It's fucking line,
1: Slimer. So. And you're going to get sli- Slimer. <laughs> oh, you, you know, it's only a matter of time before we get slimed.